Stay standing for the reading of the word of the Lord. I'll be reading from 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 9. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 9. Beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let us pray. Our Father, we give you great praise to be gathered as your people. Help us in this difficult time as we pass our time as pilgrims in this age, the difficulty of um, gathering on Lord's Day, lifting our spirits to be nourished and strengthened and brought along in our faith, to be confronted with truth, to wrestle with our own conscience in matters of conduct. Help us to think clearly, Lord, about your will for us as your people, to be obedient to that as you confront the sin that so easily entangles each and every one of us, greater than we care to look upon the frustration of our own spirits and souls as we pass our time relationally. So many things that entangle us so easily. We just come on Lord's Day. We need to be nourished. We need to be washed. We need to be confronted. We need your aid and grace for a spirit of repentance when confronted. Help us not to harden, but as the word does fall, help it to fall on godly soil, that by your spirit would produce godly fruit so that we would have a joyful harvest in our own lives, in our families, in our workplace, and all that you have called us to do as we pass our time as pilgrims. We pray that you would strengthen the preaching of the word so it would be that instrument of the spirit to do the work in our lives that is so necessary. Help us as your people through this time to be equipped to think clearly about who we are, about who you are, and your call upon our lives, your call upon our church. We ask all of this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. I trust whether you're able to be here, you're at home, wherever as we worship together, that in the midst of sort of everything changing week to week and the chaos that I can bring a little bit, that Lord's Day reminds us, indeed, the day set aside to worship our Lord, reminds us that he is the Lord of every day. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is not surprised and he is unchanging. So we come to 1 Peter, if you remember... Verses 3 through 12 of 1 Peter is really one long rambling sentence. 
Peter gives us his greeting, and then he jumps right into his argument in verses 3 through 12. And while it is one long sentence, it kind of naturally breaks up for us into three sections. And we'll look at the second section of that uh, today in Peter, verses uh, 6 through 9 is really what we'll be looking at. But Peter, in this first section, is setting for us the idea, an overview of what it means to be an elect exile. That is who is he, he is writing to, people who are elect and people who are exiles. And so he calls them that, to the elect exiles. And as we get to verse 6, the beginning of our text today, it says, In this you rejoice. And so it points us backwards for just a moment. And if you remember indeed what it is that we are rejoicing in. And that is that according to the great, the abundant mercy of God, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He has caused us to be born again to an inheritance, incorruptible, unfading, unperishable. He is keeping that inheritance for us, and he is keeping us for that inheritance as he lays out. And so we said last week, it, it does our hearts good to again and again and again come and to take this idea of the first verses here, 1 Peter, as a painting. And Peter, stroke after stroke after stroke, paints this a beautiful picture, landscape of what it means to be elect, what it means to be a child of God. All of it according to his mercy, all of it through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all of it assuring us that he will keep us. And so as he builds on this argument, he paints this beautiful picture, he calls us to sit and to look at it and to ponder it and to be encouraged and renewed by it. But he's going to make a quick transition here. So in verse 6 he says, In this you rejoice, though right now, and he's going to move into trials and sufferings. And so if you remember what I encourage you to do, what we need to do as Christians, is to take this painting, this, this beauty of our salvation, and when trials come, don't just set it aside. Well, that was great, that's beautiful, that's ours in the future, but here's the reality, and it's hard, and it's tough, and I don't like it. But instead it's to take this, all of this, our life according to the mercy of God, according to his sovereign election and causing us to be born again, taking that and moving it now right back into its place, but now as if it were transparent, as if it were a lens or a glass we could look through. Now we view our life as exiles. We view our trials and sufferings through this lens. Letting it cast its color and its shape and informing us how we walk this life as exiles and as those elect of God. Calvin says it's somewhat inconsistent when he says the faithful who are exalted with joy were at the same time sorrowful. For these are contrary feelings, but the faithful know by experience how these things can exist together much better than can be expressed by words. It's saying these, these two things are happening all the time. They need to be happening. You notice that in this we rejoice. That's not a command. That's just the reality of those who have been set free, born again to a living hope. In this you rejoice while at the very time you are suffering, while at the very same moment you are walking through trials. I can't stress how 
important it is that we grasp this. I think of the younger ones especially, because I think it's just going to get harder and harder to walk a faithful Christian life in this culture. That we are both joyful and sorrowful at the same time, as Paul would say, often sorrowing, always rejoicing. Carl Truman wrote an essay, it's really good, it's called, What Can Miserable Christians Sing? It's dealing mostly with just the shallowness of a lot of what takes place in the church nowadays. It's mainly a critique of the American church and its inability to face up to the the hardship and suffering and difficulty of life. And instead, it presents this idea of Christianity that does its best to mirror culture and is this idea of triumphalism and, and just happiness that exists, and if something's bad, we ignore it. And then the problem is, when something bad comes home to rest, then we reject Christianity. He says this, he says, The church has drunk so deeply at the well of modern Western materialism that it simply does not know what to do with trial and tragedy and ugliness and regards them as little short of embarrassing He adds, the church creates an unrealistic horizon of expectation which sees the normative Christian life as one long triumphalist street party. This is theologically incorrect and pastorally disastrous scenario in a world of broken and sinful individuals. We have to be able to face up to the reality of the hardships, the struggles, the trials of life. Some that just happen from walking in an age that are passing away. Some that we bring up on ourselves from simple, sinful choices and decisions. Living in that reality, but seeing it all through the mirror of the reality of who we are as elect in Christ. So that we can continue to worship, we can continue to persevere, we can come and we can sing and we can feast and we can mean it, even when our hearts are despairing. The Psalms are full of that idea. The Christian life is that. Often sorrowing, always rejoicing. Peter is driving that home to his audience And that's what we want to do is drive that home for you. The rest of this letter is really going to continue that. It will take on various themes as we go along. But it will look at this idea of living faithfully in trials and suffering. So I think what verse, our text today, really verse 6 and 7 in the text today then, sets for us an expectation of what trials look like in our life and how they are functioning in our life. And in so doing, it will help us walk through those with a heart that doesn't turn away from God but continues rejoicing. Verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. The first thing we see about these trials is that they are momentary. Now for a little while. Now when I say they're momentary, realize if someone is walking through a heart-breaking situation, the first word I say to them isn't, well, it'll pass. In the immediate moment of the heartbreak, you know, time is relative. And in the immediate moment of the heartbreak, 
that's not what you address. But as you're able to look at it and then to step back and see it in perspective, it really is a bomb to the soul. It really does give a measure of endurance when we see that our trials are momentary. For some, it really is just a blip in your life. For others, it's, maybe it's most of your life. But in comparison to the inheritance which is awaiting for us that we saw in verses 4 and 5, to which we are being kept for, it is momentary. I think whenever we face up to our relationship to time, it, it's, it has an impact on our life. Sometimes it's sad to see life passing at the pace it does. Sometimes it, it kind of just kicks our butts into gear a little bit and to think we need to make the most of each moment. At other times, the idea that life is a vapor is about the most comforting thing that you can have. When you see the difficulty and hardship of life and you realize it's but a moment, and then inheritance, eternity awaits. Trials are momentary. You see then as we continue, in this you rejoice, though for a little while, if necessary. Trials are purposeful. If necessary, it's not you that's deciding if it's necessary. If it was you, you would think, no, I'm good, I don't need trials. Who's deciding if these trials are necessary? All the way back up to verse 3 at the beginning of our sentence. The blessed God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Various trials, they come in a moment, just for a moment in time. And they come if necessary. They are purposeful in your life. I think people often want to, from a good place, they want to remove God away from suffering and trials. They, they want to comfort you with the idea that God wouldn't do this to you, and maybe they want to defend God's reputation in some way, in a sense that, well, no, he has nothing to do with that. But in so doing, they're really taking the purposefulness out of trials. When we face suffering, when we face a trial, it shouldn't be simply to get through it and get back to normal. It should be that God is using them to transform us, to change us. We'll look at the end of this text, what the purpose is more specifically. It's always a bit tricky. I won't solve it this morning. But does God really will bad things, our suffering, our hardship? And the answer is always yes and no. No, in the sense that God doesn't delight or take pleasure in your suffering just for the sake of suffering. That God doesn't stand behind, that God doesn't cause, that God never commands that you be sinful in some way that would bring about suffering. He's never the cause or he never delights in that. And yet he is sovereign in the sense that nothing happens outside of his will. He could prevent whatever he chooses to prevent. That he is the first mover and the first actor. And that his designs for, for our perseverance, for the, for the perseverance of the church, for the good of the individual, for the exaltation of his glory, his designs are much higher and greater than are the designs of Satan for our demise. Or the designs of our own flesh to, to, to satisfy and taste of the things of this world. 
or the designs of suffering for our own hurt and anguish. It goes back to that classic text in Genesis 50. Man meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And so, yes, he is sovereign and he is purposeful, even in the hardest of times. So our trials are momentary, our trials are purposeful, our trials are varied. I think that's important note there. You've been grieved by various trials, varied, that's the idea of many colored, all shapes and sizes, all colors it'll come at you. Same words used later in Peter to talk about the, the gracious gifts that God gives us, the varied gifts that God gives us. I think it's helpful because while we all walk as elect exiles, we all have very different experiences in the trials and the sufferings that come into our lives. And it does no good to sit and compare yourself to the person beside you. That it's unfair that, that you, they got off easy and you have it difficult. It's unfair to compare one person's suffering. It's unwise to compare your suffering to another. You may look at someone and think, wow, they've skated through life as happy as can be. I guarantee you they haven't at some point. They've faced trials. Your trials may just be more difficult. And yet God is purposeful in them. He gives a variety of trials. Then the last, before we continue on with it, we see that, that trials are grievous. We have been grieved by various trials. I say they're grieved in the sense that the point of this isn't to say, God's so great that your trials seem like nothing. It's not to downplay suffering and trials as if it's like it's not that big a deal compared to God. The, the trial can be heart-wrenching. The trial can be long and exhausting. The suffering can go on and on. And it's not helpful to say to someone or to be told, like, the suffering doesn't matter. It's not a big deal. It's not that bad. It could be worse. What is helpful is to admit the trial, the suffering, the hardship as exiles, walking as pilgrims in an age that is passing away. You're going to face some suffering. You're going to face some hardship. What we need to do for rejoicing is not to belittle the hardship, but again, to take the panorama of living life according to the mercy of God, ones who have been caused to be born again to new life, and viewing the hardship through that. And so he lays out for us what trials, what they will look like, and then he gets more specific on the purpose of those trials in verse 7. You've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I think, first of all, as he moves on to the specific purpose, we need to guard against the idea, Peter, I think, wants us to guard against the idea, that we don't confuse the testing of our faith with a failure in our faith. As if the testing of our faith is somehow punishment. Or if we just had a little more faith, then we wouldn't suffer. You've heard that say, some, said before, someone who is sick and you're praying for their healing. 
And it's not that if you just had more faith, that person would no longer be sick. They would be healed. Peter isn't writing about the testing of our faith in order to say, point the finger and say, oh, your testing proves shame on you. He's saying that God uses it in our lives in a purposeful way, not as an implication that you are doing something wrong necessarily. He uses the illustration of, of testing by fire. You, you're familiar with this probably. It's used other places in scripture. And it's that idea of he takes your faith, and that is the gold, and he puts the fire to it. That is the trial and the suffering. And as it heats up, as it becomes intense, impurities within that gold rise to the top. And then you're able to skim them off and get rid of them, and the gold is, is, becomes more pure, is pure because of it. That's the idea with your faith. It's not that you don't have faith, but it is mixed with, with other things from this age that are passing away. And when the trials come, when the suffering gets intense, when the unknown is right before you, when things heat up, bubbling to the surface, comes all those competing idols. Comes the murmuring and the complaining. Comes the pride. Comes the doubt. It comes to the surface. And trials expose that, and God's grace helps us to slowly get rid of that. Bubbling to the surface shows that just, you know, I didn't think I was that materialistic, but man, I really count on my job or my money or my bank account for my hope and my security. And, and when that comes bubbling to the surface, the, the Lord reveals that. And your faith is purified through this testing as God starts to remove competing idols and competing things in which we place our assurance. And so testing, trials, works that way in purifying your faith. It's true, you know, if you've walked through hard times, you know that there's an extra sensitivity to the things of the Lord during those times. And revealed to you is just your pride, or where it is you're really placing hope and security. And the Lord uses those times. It's not to get back to how it was before. It's, it's for purification of your faith. And then Peter walks on and says, but you know, in the end, really, even that gold is going to be consumed on the day of the Lord. It is the faith that is valuable. It is the faith that lasts. It is the faith that is precious because it is that faith that God gives us through which we are caused to be born again to a living hope. Look how he continues there in verse 7. I'll just read the verse again. So that the test of genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I think what's happening here is God's glory is being reflected in our faith and our hope and our trust of him. And as the fire comes and as, as trials come and it purifies, it's, it's a, a purer reflection, if you would, of God's glory and God's grace and God's strength that we are hoping in, we are trusting in, we are loving God. He is the object of that. 
And we are told, Peter tells us that, God exalts all who exalt in him. That idea of well done, thy good and faithful servant. In 1 Peter 5, later in the chapter, he'll talk about the unfading crown of glory that we are given. Not that we have earned, not that we have merited, but what God in his sovereignty through testing has purified our faith in order that he might keep us for the inheritance that he is keeping for us. And we gain this crown and we cast it back at the feet of God in honor and praise and glory. And, and we share in this honor and praise and glory as those hidden in Christ. In the purity of your faith, he's now working that in you. That you might be a better reflection of that honor, that praise, that glory. He continues on then, verses 8 and 9. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Peter recognizes that he has an advantage over the people who he's talking to. Peter is seeing Christ. He says later in the chapter that he is witness to his sufferings. And so Peter acknowledges that. And another thing that I think that can stand in the way of people's perseverance in the midst of, of trials is that, that they don't see Christ right now. What they see is the hardship and the troubles. And so Peter says, you do not see him. You didn't see him, and you're not now seeing him. And yet, though you do not now see him, you love him, and you believe in him, and you rejoice in him. Calvin, one more time, says, Faith is not a cold notion, but rather it kindles in our hearts a love for Christ. Moreover, it does not lay hold on just the simple bare name of Christ, but regards what he is to us and what blessing he brings. In other words, it's not, again, this painting that we looked at in verses 3 through 5 of God's beauty and his glory and all that he is. And then it just becomes, okay, that's a fact. Let's set it over here. Suffering is, is really hard and difficult, and I don't see Christ in any of this. It's no... This painting of who God is and what he is to us, that even in the midst of suffering, it fills our hearts with love for him. It affects our affections, our emotions are stirred. We believe in him. We trust in him. We worship. We rejoice. It's a relational thing that we have with God as we walk through suffering. It's not just a fact and a category over here. It is our life hidden in Christ, born again to a living hope. That fact of being born again, that that faith is real, that the love then is stirred within us, that knowing God, we might love him. And walking through hardships and trials, walking through suffering, should stir in us and should kindle our affection for the Lord. And while we may not see him visibly, because he has given us life, because we've been born again to a living hope, we see him at work in our lives, and we love him. We hear his promises in the midst of trials, and we believe him. 
And in this we rejoice. And this is what Peter is telling them. That even in the midst of suffering, their affections can be stirred. Their hearts should be stirred. Then he goes on, verse 9, as we close, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That in the midst of all of these trials, in the midst of the fiery heat of the trials, that he's refining your faith, and that right now, this is in pre- a present tense, it's not just future It's present tense that right now you are obtaining the outcome of your faith. That is the salvation of your souls. That the Lord is using trials as a means of saving you. You see what Peter did. He starts here by pointing us backwards. We are elect. That is that God caused us to be born again to a living hope. God did that. The new birth, regeneration, that took place in the past. God has caused that to take place in our lives. Then right now as exiles, we are walking by God's grace, still according to his mercy, in the midst of the trial, in the midst of the suffering, and God is right now saving us through that. He is purifying, he is refining our faith, he is keeping us. This is what he is using to persevere us. He is saving us right now. For what? That future inheritance that he is keeping for us. Undefiled, unfading, imperishable. The future hope, the the salvation of your souls, as it says here. So Peter encourages the people of the dispersion. He encourages us this morning. Remember, sit and remember your election in Christ. What that means. Life according to the mercy of God. The resurrection of Jesus Christ that gives us a sure and a living hope. That gives us an unfading inheritance. And then through that lens, understand that life is going to be full of trials and suffering especially as pilgrims living in an age that is passing away. If we're addicted to comfort, if we're addicted to ease and acceptance, then that refining fire won't have its way in our lives. Instead, we'll just do everything we can do to avoid it. And we do that just by mirroring, fearing man and mirroring mirroring culture but when you walk boldly by faith you're going to experience trial and suffering this age is just full of it anyways let that refining fire do its work because it is right now obtaining for you the outcome of your faith that is the salvation of your souls and then just remember it is just a moment compared to all eternity of an imperishable, incorruptible, undefiled inheritance being kept by God for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. Lord, it's incredibly vital that we learn how to suffer well. 
as a church, as Christians, might we able, be able to face up to it and to see that not only is it expected, it's promised that it will be part of our pilgrim journey. So Lord, even though we're often sorrowing, help us to always be rejoicing. Lord, might the trials and suffering have their purifying work in order that we might better reflect the glory of Jesus Christ. Give you just a moment in quietness, thought.